Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today, I am excited to welcome back to Radical Personal Finance, Jacob Lund Fisker, host, or I guess I should say author of one of my favorite books on financial freedom called Early Retirement Extreme, author of the blog by the same uh, title. Jacob, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, it's been, what, six years, seven? It's been a long time. <laughs> Last time we had an epic three-hour podcast that for quite a while was the most listened to episode of my show, and we really had a great time. It's been now how many years since you retired? Well, uh, first first time or second time around? I mean, I don't really think of it as as, as retired Per se, more like the 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 option to do what I want, what whenever I want, with right. a reason, right? Uh, but um, I mean, I retired. Well, I, I stopped with my physics career in 2009, and then I had a stint in uh, high finance, Wall Street kind of stuff between 2012 and 2015. So I guess technically, it's it's been five years. So about about five years since you left the world of finance. Yeah. So. What I'd like to begin our conversation with today is just simply to ask you a little bit about how you view your personal financial philosophy and the path that you've taken with the benefit of hindsight. Do you continue to feel satisfied with the path that you've taken with your life and your career, the early retirement extreme lifestyle so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 working pretty well. I mean, it's it's sort of currently being cast within the framework of, of fire. But to me, uh, as in like financial independence, retired early. But I never really saw those two things as the main character characteristics of of my philosophy per se. I mean, financial independence was more of a, a side effect that just followed from from the way I was otherwise living. So. Uh, I'd say in contrast to to what it has sort of become, it was not really a milestone for me as much as just a, a checkbox as in like, hey, now I can do this. Uh, you know, I have these options now that I didn't have before. And from my perspective, it's, I mean, it's almost as if it, it's almost like financial independence is so simple that I often find, find myself wondering why is it not something everybody's doing? So, um I mean that's so. So in that sense, I'm I'm living the same way that I've I've, I've always, uh, well not yeah, always always probably pretty a pretty close description. I've lived this way for like almost 20 years now. So I mean it's it's working good for me, and I'm getting better and better at it. Uh, originally, I mean my uh, my my original motivation was to 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 figure out how to live with a uh, sustainable footprint. Mm-hmm. And what I did was to essentially look at the world GDP and look at the ecological footprint of the world and the world population and then calculate very simply uh, how much could I spend if we all had to live with the same amount, same size slice of the pie. And that number back then when I calculated in, in 2000, 2001 was about $6,000 per year. And so I wanted to figure out with how, how, how that would be possible. And calculating it now, you get, I think, numbers sort of lag a little bit, but I think the 2019 uh, numbers were 6,750. 
So I've stayed sort of like in the six, six to seven thousand range for a while, while having like jobs that paid more, not not spectacularly much, but then I just saved that. And for like the first four years, I did not even really know what to do with it. It was just sitting in a savings account because I knew that I did not grow up in the U.S. So uh, where I come from, this whole stock investing was thought of more as a as speculating back then. So I was just putting it in a savings account with the aim to buy a house. So yeah, so I'm kind of so happy is, with. <laughs> you're you're. Some you're often talked about in the world of financial media for your frugality. Famously, many years ago, you were talked about as someone who could live on seven thousand dollars a year in California for some of the the by some of the decisions that you made. But what I think a lot of people missed and didn't understand was that this came from a philosophical perspective that had a lot to do with sustainability and ecology. Your goal was not simply to spend a small amount so you could quit working. Your goal right. was to have a more modest footprint. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a sort of, it's a very simplistic way of seeing it just in terms of, of, of money, but that's, that's where people come from. Right. Um, but I mean, I mean, admittedly, I, I I grew up like you know your standard consumer, uh, and I before before that I I started this when I was 24 when I was in grad school. So before that, I was I was sort of the the regular consumer gadget freak techno optimist, you know, just having to have, have the newest stuff all the time. Uh, but then I have had a little bit of an epiphany at at that age, and then I just <laughs> changed track completely and realized I, I actually did not really know much about how to live well on very little. So, like with most people, I initially started out sacrificing. You know, like that's sort of like the the, the trivial, the context-free knowledge. You don't know anything. So, what what is the simplest thing you can do? You can just cut things away, right? And then. Over the past 20 years, I've, I've, I've learned more and more skills and learned how to combine, combine them. So I get, I, I've been able to stretch my, my money further and further and further. So I would say at this point, I mean, our lifestyle, we, we now live in a house in the, in the western suburbs, about uh, eight, eight miles from Chicago downtown. So just where the city ends and, uh, and the taxation ends. Um, <laughs> And it's 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 rather indistinguishable, I would say, from from our neighbors. I mean, if if you visit us, you can see there's some some like weird things going on. Like we have we grow lettuce indoors, or we we store food, uh, which turned out to be great for COVID. And we have we're like one of I wouldn't say the only, but we're one of the few people who don't have like a lawn in our backyard. I, I double dig everything up, and now we. Uh, grow vegetables. Last year we had like 339 pounds. Uh, I, I weighed everything. I've started obsessing about this. <laughs> like how, how well can we do this? You know, I've, I've learned woodworking. I've learned lots, lots of different things. So um, when, when, when people think about 7,000, they often, and, and they're spending say 70,000 themselves, they think, okay, he's living on a, on a 10th of what I do, and I feel like I should have more money, so his life must be ten times as miserable as mine is, mm -hmm. you know. But in in reality, I spend the, my seven thousand, and my wife spends another seven thousand, so about fourteen thousand in total for two adults. Uh, 
we spend it very, very differently. Our budget looks completely different than sort of the mainstream consumer, or I would maybe even say the, the typical fire person. Do, what were the influences when you were in grad school that caused you to move from your more consumption-oriented ways into your current philosophy? Uh, yeah, okay, that's a good question. Uh, so the, I would say, I mean, back then it was like Web 1.0, you know, where people did these corny web pages. If they had something to say, there was no blogs and no YouTube, no Facebook, even MySpace was not a thing. So typically you'd find, come across some kind of website um, and uh, you'd read about that and then you could follow it around, uh, links to links to links. And um so, so I can't really point on like a single thing like you can today. Oh, I found this blog and this guy was cool and I just did what he did. You know, that's, that's sort of like the typical story today. But back then it was more put together a bunch of many different things. Uh, and I had to sort of make sense, sense out of everything myself. Uh, because I didn't know what I, what I didn't know, so to speak. Uh, but, but I think if, if, if I had to point at a progenitor site, so to speak, um, I would say there was a site called burdened.net, I think it was. It was it was an anti-consumer site that, that talked a lot about uh, the, the, the other side of our growth economy, as in like what happens to all the all, all our junk, all this all the crap we buy when we're done mm -hmm. using it. You know, where when it goes to the landfill, where you know what happens and where does where do our resources come from? So, so before that, I was just sort of seeing a very narrow uh, picture of the of the entire cycle, the, sort of like from the supermarket to my shelves and my phone, and then to the to the trash can. Or to I mean, if you I mean that wasn't even much of a thing like Craigslist or eBay. So typically, if you bought something and you got tired of it, then it just got filed in the attic. It just sat there, it's like dispersed entropy of our consumer goods. Um, and that led me to to the peak oil community, which was a big thing at the time. So there's like always, I would say in general, like three different sort of pressure points for humanity. There's even either either population or resources, the resource depletion or the pollution side. So at any one point over the past, I would say. 100 years and probably going from the 20s to the 21st century it'll be one of these three things so 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 my i mean population was essentially solved ish in in the 20th century for now and in energy was then the, the the thing back then and i and 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 the, the concern back then was that uh, the world would very soon run out of oil i mean the energy consumption per capita peaked in the late 70s on a global basis, and I'm not sure. I don't actually think it has recovered yet. And of course, we know that in the U.S., it, it peaked initially in 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 '72, which completely changed like the geopolitical structure of how the U.S. behaved on the like the on an international basis. And shale gas kind of flipped that back again for a while. Um, so my initial goal, based on the footprint, was to try to figure out how to live in a world where resources were harder to come by so become more self-reliant so so that was my original uh, initial drive and then i was in grad school at the time i liked i liked doing physics and they paid me uh, about i think 
uh, somewhere between 20 and 25,000. I think in grad school today in physics, you, you earn about 30K a year. And since I was only spending like six, 6K, I could save the other, right? Uh, so that gave me a savings rate of around 75%. And so that, those just went in on a savings account. And it was only later that, uh, I mean, initially those savings were intended to, uh, to purchase a house in cash because I did not want to get locked into a mortgage. It's like a death sentence, right? Uh, <laughs> something like that. Death pledge. Yeah, death pledge, yeah. Um, so I wanted to buy a house in cash. Um, and it was only after I came to the US, but that happened very quickly because you just get infused with this whole like market economy thinking that, wow, if I invest this at like 3% instead of 2%, then I could actually, I, I would be pretty close to, to being able to make a living doing that. And I would not be, be stuck in this uh, like academic track I was on. And I would not be able to, I would not have to depend on a job, for example. So I just wanted that freedom instead of a house. I mean, I sort of started moving around in the world and getting getting settled in a house was, that had sort of faded out of, of the, my now unconventional thinking. Right. I mean, ironically, like, we did eventually buy a house in cash here. So <laughs> I'd like to ask a question about this philosophy and how you've shared it. I've followed your work for many years. You've done a, a little bit more media over the last few months, and I haven't followed every single one of those interviews, but I read most of your written content. And while I understood that you had an attraction to environmental consciousness and ecological sustainability, and I knew that that was a component of your thinking, that was never the primary thing that you led with. You right. would often lead your yeah. message with a conversation about financial freedom and the lifestyle of going sailing on the bay and spending right. time with no boss. And yeah. one of the things that I have observed as I watch the world, I see that so many people market their ideas in what I think are ineffective ways. And specifically, we're talking about one of those that I think is marketed ineffectively. Many people who are very concerned about ecological sustainability market their philosophy with a sense of guilt to try to cause people to feel bad about their consumption and to cause people to uh, you know, say no and deny themselves and stop being a consumer because you should feel guilty for your impact on the planet. But yeah. I've observed that you can market it with just simply frugality and personal freedom and you can kind of wind up in the same place. If you were to go back 10 years, were you conscious of what you were doing? Were you intentionally trying to get people to join you with a lower consumption lifestyle and leading it with a positive marketing message? Or did that right. just naturally occur? No, 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 that was very sneaky and very intentional. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things um, we kind of learned with, with the, with the peak oil movement was that it was, it, 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 it was essentially preaching to the choir. Very much so. And it was very hard to break out of this chamber of people. Because whenever you went elsewhere and said, okay, like uh, we have big problems here with the oil supply and that is going to cause some suffering, maybe loss of life, et cetera, et cetera. Very depressing stuff, you know, population bottlenecks. And yeah, anyway. Uh, and almost always, I mean, when, when you first find something out, something that is so life-changing when you first discover that you feel like telling other people about it, you know, like, oh, you know, right. And um, 
almost inevitably and without any exception people would always tell me oh jacob this is so depressing please please shut up about it there's nothing i can do about it anyway i'm like stuck in this life etc and uh and i'd rather not hear about it uh, you see the same thing with climate change today um so i figured well i mean like you said i've been living in, in, in this way that is actually compatible with 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 potentially solving this problem at least protecting myself somewhat or be becoming somewhat self-reliant increasing some resilient uh, increasing resilience but there's also this other side of it which is i've sort of found a different way to play the game um which which led to financial independence and not being stuck in this sort of um Light, the, what Thoreau called uh, lives of quiet desperation, or what I, I I prefer the term comfortable misery. You know, like <laughs> we're not really happy about what we're doing, what the way we're living. You know, uh, but 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 at least it's comfortable and safe. It's miserable, comfortable, and safe. Yeah, that seems to sort of be what people try and try to optimize from uh, for, and and so the reach for uh, the, the the reach by 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 offering well. You can have this and you can have financial freedom. And more importantly, you can do something without the, 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 the most typical approach in, um, in, 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 in these uh, communities is essentially that the solution is to build community. So say, okay, the climate is changing. There's going to be problems. What's the first step? Well, we got to find, we got to form a community of people who see this problem, and then we got to study it as a community. And then once we've studied it, we've got to find a community solution, and then we got to implement it as a community. So I've, I've, I've tried doing a little bit of that as well. You know, I was involved in a nonprofit for a while, uh, almost concurrently with, um, with writing the ERE blog. Uh, that, that's what I did uh, right after I quit physics. But the the problem is always, I mean, it's just at, at the community level, it's just, you can sit and you can sit and talk and agree on stuff, but it's hard to do the leadership required to get everybody to pull in the same direction, especially when people as individuals, you know, we essentially as consumers, we've been divided and conquered. So that we can't really do anything because, well, we had to go to 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 work every day, right? And we had to pay our mortgage. We had to pay our bills and so on. And so the, with the with the financial independence thing, you can try to do uh, sort of attack the problem at an individual level and say, okay, we can't. Communities are really difficult, but at least you can do this. And if you do this, then you get all these other benefits. And then some people are, of course, going to say, well, I don't believe in you know like reality. Uh, I think technology can solve all our problems. Um, and Instead of me being frustrated by that, I could say, well, that's great. As long as you're spending a little less, you know, that that's helping the problem. It's, it's no longer hurting the problem. And it's kind of the same thing when uh, when people ask me, what do you think about the fire movement these days? You know, like oh, practically nobody is spending 7,000. Isn't that like bad or something? Well, I mean, if you can take people who otherwise would have spent 100,000 and, and get them to spend 70,000, right? That's that's you know, for each one of those being sort of converted or changing their lifestyle is, is worth like five of my kind, right? <laughs> um, 
so in that sense, I think that has been way more effective than than the than the one that than than the approach where you, where you go after essentially the attacking the problem directly. So when you look at the fire movement and you consider, I guess, as one of the more well-known inspirations in the space. When you look at the fire movement, I hear that you're satisfied that at least we're moving in the right direction in terms of your personal goal of getting people to consume at a more reasonable level and that we're doing it with a more easily marketable message, helping people to live a better lifestyle, focus on financial freedom, and then having the environmental benefits as in some ways an unintended side effect for many people. Right. What are your thoughts though, in terms of what you see to the extent that you watch the fire movement at all? Do you feel like things have been changed? Are you happy with the direction? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, first off, first of all, of course the fire movement is huge now. So it's, it's much bigger than the, like, like the three or four people of that we were like in the 2010. So, if I make blanket statements about it, I'm probably going to piss people off, at least some some off, right? But I think so. Like, there are two perspectives perspectives on it. So, like, the first thing is that um, the, the space has sort of filled out. Uh, back then, it was it was quite easy to dismiss me as being this crazy guy who lives lived in an RV at the time, you know. Um, uh, you're familiar with the Wheaton Eco Scale, right? Yes, Paul Wheaton. <laughs> Paul Wheaton says yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, the, the, go ahead. You yeah. can explain it. Yeah. So he he made the the, the Wheaton Eco Scale to describe the problem with uh, doing outreach or explaining complex things within permaculture, and I found this found that the same 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 problem actually exists um, with with the ERE philosophy because it's it's substantially more complex than the than than the just earn more than you spend and put everything in an index fund, which is kind of what the intro fire movement has sort of settled on. So, so these days, uh, I would say the, 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 the ERE or the fire Wheaton scale has, has filled out. So, so it's a lot easier to find someone who's inspiring to you, someone who's not too extreme. And, and once you've, sort of learn things at, at, at a given level, you can move on to the next level and find a new teacher to inspire you. And you can always, almost always find another one who knows just a little bit more and when you're ready to move to the next step. Uh, and that did not exist in the beginning. Uh, they did, I mean, even 10 years ago, people didn't really know where to put this kind of movement, what, what it was, at, at least like promoters of senior living lifestyles. You know, there was this huge discussion about what retirement actually was, right? I mean, you, you're probably part of the early stuff, uh, early stuff. That was, it, it was immensely frustrating because, of course, it does not, retirement does not mean the same to someone who does it at age 35 as opposed to someone who's, who retires at age 75. Um, I'd say sort of like on, 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 on the flip side of that, of having it have, having grown much bigger is that to a large degree, the, the sort of like the public appearance of the fire movement has changed. I mean, we started out as a, as a bunch of nerds who wanted to solve the problems of the world. Right. And, and now it's sort of been taking over by by 
entrepreneurial business oriented types who are seeking to sell seminars and, and camps and travels and and consulting services <laughs> and right. what have you, right? And 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 fire has I mean the media narrative now for fire, which I think might be somewhat justified, is that it's mainly a bunch of software engineers with six figure incomes who, you know, pat each other on the back for being frugal when they spend like ten percent less than their coworkers. Right. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. And I think the, 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 the problem with that is that the original intention is, is, is somewhat gone. Uh, that, that people who are not into the fire movement or who have not familiarized with, with sort of like that it is a, a very diverse set of people, uh, get the impression, well, that's just a bunch of, of rich people who, who, who want to be millionaires. Uh, but that's the impression I'm getting, and that could be completely wrong because I'm not really such a big, big part of sort of like the active fire movement. I don't know if that's correct. Um, so that's what I mean. That's right. So I'd like to pivot a little bit here because I wanted to get a little bit of your backstory and kind of update it. But one observation or one area where I'd really like to explore with you is specifically some of the technical details. When you stopped writing for Early Retirement Extreme, you went into the investment world and you spent several years working as a professional quant. And so I think you've often had a deeper level of analysis from the perspective of investing and personal financial management than many people who haven't had that kind of experience. Uh, do you look at, given your your background, thinking about big systemic risks, do you think that the way that financial independence is talked about with many people, things like the 4% rule, using index funds, et cetera, do you think that these are safe ways to pursue financial freedom for most people? Ooh, well, I mean, not that nothing is safe, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, and I think maybe that's the problem, that there's not really this realization that people are actually dealing with financial markets and not a savings account. Uh, I think from, from that perspective, it's important to understand that the, the financial markets are a complex adaptive system. So it's, it's, not, it's not an engineering problem as much as it's a, a socioeconomic or social problem or philo philosophical problem. So by, by a complex adaptive system, I mean that Complex usually implies many components that are connected in different ways that are not immediately obvious. Uh, we have many different kinds of products and many different kinds of agents like private investors, institutions, entire governments, and they do not necessarily have the same goals. They have different interests. And not all of these interests are necessary that the market should go up. I mean, if you're like a big bank, you might not care much that the market goes up because you're making your money doing transactions. Um, and adaptive means that people are mainly looking out for their own interests and not so much the market as itself. So the, 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 the financial markets adapt to the environment as it changes and it adapts to itself. And I think the problem is... Um, when you get down to the sort of like the more simplistic level, uh, uh, like what's currently popular sort of in the, uh, I would say, 
what's a good term for this? Retail analysis is probably a bad term. Um, typical fire movement planning is that <laughs> people like to use uh, statistics to try to sort of get a whole, uh, get 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 a grip on on what this complex adaptive system is is, is doing. So it so so it's easier to think about it, and that's that's where you get things like the uh, the four percent rule. Uh, and the problem with that uh, are, are things like, well, you take the average of all returns and you get something like 10% per year, right? Uh, because that's what the market has returned historically or for most of the 20th century. Uh, and then you can do something like sequence of returns, or you can do the sequence of returns randomly, and you can say, okay, the minimum withdrawal rate is 4%. And the problem there is, I think, think at least that's my impression of seeing people talk about the four percent rule is that they, they treat it very much like a like a permanent savings account or like an annuity well, all you have to do is you throw everything in in stocks and then you like wave your hands a bit and you say four percent rule and in the long run and that means you can take out four percent constantly uh just because historically the proof essentially is in the 20th century, but I mean, the 20th century, uh, speaking a little bit more as a sort of like an, 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 an operator, as a professional, would have a different view of how this works. Um, especially as, as a quant, you're very concerned about with what, what, what your sample, uh, your sample data is and what your population data is and whether those two are the same thing. Right. Um, so, um, how to explain, uh, so one of one of the problems, yeah. So like like a good way to explain this. So like in the '90s, right, there were people doing um, a lot of day trading. They almost stopped working, took out credit card debt, and then they started day trading dot com stocks. You see a little bit. I mean, we try to have like a little bit of like a resurgence of that with games, game stonks, and meme stonks, and all that. And everybody, as long as the the main market goes trends upwards, right? Then you can sit and day trade along that major trend and think you're a genius. You can even do pretty bad because you have this kind of rising tide underneath you that pushes everybody up so that overall you'll have more successes than you will have failures. So you'll have a positive return rate, even though you might be adding negative alpha to that trend. So the 20th century had a lot of trends that often go ignored the 20th century in the u.s particular where the four percent rule comes from has some has some trends that might not be sustainable in the 21st century i mean you had uh especially if if you do more recent data sets like from the 80s you have had interest rates that have just gone from like 20 percent down to, to to zero so if your investment history your autobiography is from that period you have through your entire investment career been operating in a world where interest rates have been declining with all things being equal push your stop stocks upwards just because of that not from any inherent sort of investment strategy in stocks but just because interest rates are declining uh 20th century also has had the us rising to become a dominant economy in the world essentially uh, a global empire if you will winning the cold war sort of underline that uh, that cannot be repeated it's already the world empire right uh, so you cannot do that again so you do not get that boost again um, the thing i mentioned earlier about uh, energy use per capita increased until it peaked in the late 70s 
So that is also on the decline. So now we're looking more at um, growth in efficiency of energy use, like the carbon efficiency. Um, so how much GDP do we get for each barrel of oil instead of looking at um, how many barrels of oil can we drag out of the ground? So that's a different kind of economy again. So that's changing as well. And so if, if you're working in, in the quant world trying to analyze these stuffs, this stuff mathematically to find some kind of trading strategy, you want to detrend these things so you can see if you are actually adding some like intelligent strategy to this or you're just riding a high tide. Right. So the, the, the trends for declining productivity growth because we essentially have the best economy on the planet, right? So it's hard to improve it. We have picked the low-hanging fruit and all the branches, and there's less right. fruit further up. So we have a lot of infrastructure debt that we need to pay to. So in, in, in that sense, and you can see that if you take the 4% rule and try it in other countries, you don't get 4%, right? If, if you go to countries that lost World War II, it's more like a 1% rule or a half percent rule. Because if you lose a world war, right, that's pretty bad. Um, so that was a long answer. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty damaging to lose a world war. So this, this is I'm trying to think of what order to approach this in. Because the things that you're talking about are things that are important to me, and I'm, I'm not waving my hands and attacking something like the four percent rule with. Passive index funds. Uh, I, I personally think that people in that situation probably have a lot more safety than many people would understand. I mean, after all, if you've got millions yeah, of dollars, yeah, yeah. you can adjust to the circumstances as they develop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, 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 don't get me wrong. I mean, there are plenty other much worse thing you can do with your money than than believing in that one, right? Right. I mean, uh, the the meme stock thing is is. Uh, yeah, interesting to say the least. Uh, and yeah, but I, I hesitate to say specifics because I know that'll be like one, one or five or ten people who will go. Well, Jacob said this, so I'm going to do that. Well, uh, how do even, you even how do you manage your own money? Do you have do you fit into a, a bucket of some kind, a trading strategy, an investment strategy? How do you personally invest your assets? Uh, I mainly pursue sort of like a sleep well at night strategy. Uh, that, that, that is very important to me. So I don't need to go into like uh, group up, group up sessions whenever the market drops, uh, five, 5% or something. Um, but it's, 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 it's somewhat idiosyncratic, uh, in, in the sense I've found something that fits my temperament well. And, and, and in, in, I mean, I like to read a lot, uh, about many different things. I do somewhat follow financial, uh, news however i have no real interest in analyzing companies you know looking reading uh, annual statements stuff like that i don't do that um so i mean if you, if you want like a specific book recommendation of something that's pretty close to what i'm doing uh, howard marks uh, wrote a recent book i don't i forget what the title is something about market cycles so i i'm i'm mainly a market cycle investor uh and, and what I try to do is to figure out, um, so like Mark Twain said something like the, the, what, 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 what can, um, the problem is not what, in what you don't know. It's, it's what you believe strongly that just ain't so. Right. And that, that is, that is, I mean, 
if 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 you can find as as a trader or as an investor the the people who don't know uh, if you can find some counterparty to to trade against or invest against if they don't know what they're doing they're not nearly as profitable as as those who think they know what they do but do not um because they'll keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over again whereas the others it's more sort of like you're trading against random um so um that's that's what i'm essentially trying to identify trends that people what trends where people strongly believe there is a trend and i'm pretty sure there's no trend or it's a fake trend and then i do something that'll benefit from when people come around and realize oh what i thought i what i what i used to i don't well, i changed my mind i essentially realized that i was wrong and then huge amounts of money tends to move there and that means being i mean it's it's sort of like a weird way of uh, it's not exactly value investing but it's sort of, sort of the same mentality you have to have conviction in what you're doing uh, is the book that you're referring to mastering the market cycle getting the odds on your side by howard marks very likely it's sort of like gold published october 2018 yeah 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 probably very very likely yeah I, I think that's the closest thing I've read to something like where I can say, wow, that is just the way I do it. I would like to do it. And that's just because I'm, I'm kind of me. I mean, that's, uh, I would, I would say if, 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 if someone is just starting out investing and can more easily say like maybe, I mean, Warren Buffett would usually tells people to just go and invest in index funds. And that's very good sort of like generic uh, CCYA advice. Right. Um, and if you can more easily uh, say get a salary increase of 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 ten percent, then then you can get like an investment yield return of two percent. Then by all means, you should probably just punt on the indexing for now, right? Punt punt by indexing and just concentrate on your career while you're making money. I mean, it also depends on how much you're managing. So I would say my investment strategy has changed as I've sort of gotten wealthier. And it's at some point I might just sort of like throw in the towel entirely and say, okay, I don't really need to spend time doing this anymore. I'm just going to put everything in uh, something extremely simple, but very safe, like tips or something, because I already have enough money for the rest of my life. I don't need to grow it. I mean, that's kind of the weirdest thing I, 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 I saw on, on, on Wall Street was, was people just having their money sitting in a checking account. Because they had so much, it didn't even matter about inflation. It was just, you know, <laughs> it's just one big checking right. account. So, uh, so, 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 in terms of like giving or getting advice, it's 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 probably more important to find someone who who's sort of in the same situation than it is to find uh, one true answer to all things investing. Uh, uh, the other problem with the one true answer to all things and uh, about investing, like. I would say that, that index, uh, especially like stock, stock index funds are currently is that once it becomes widespread, you know, like who's going to keep buying into that, you're going to run out of buyers and then the strategy will stop working. So, um, you made an income when you were working as a quant, right? And mm -hmm. a reasonable professional income. You made a lot of money while you were working as a quant. 
Uh, what what is a lot of money to you? I just mean <laughs> you weren't working for ten thousand dollars a year, right? You were making a, a normal salary or a normal income yeah, yeah, I, yeah, for that I mean, kind of investment work, right? Uh, yeah. So they pay what is uh, like uh, considered competitive with industry for for the junior level. It's essentially a question of uh, hiring people, see if they're any good. I wasn't that good, and then like just going through going through the people to identify. So there's no real sort of strategy for finding. Uh, finding good traders so it's more a question of trying people and see if they can do something and then if not you try someone else and in general about 10 percent succeed or stay with it and out of them a lot of them make make their money and then they just leave anyway because it's it's very stressful work um but yeah it's 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 like competitive it's like the high five figures I mean, you can look this stuff up on Glassdoor. It's it's not it's not like you get hired as a quant and people automatically think, well, now he's making a quarter million a year. A year. There's nothing like that at all. So. so I guess my question back to kind of lifestyle design: Why did you stop working? If you were working in something that you liked, something that you enjoyed, the intellectual challenge, why did you stop that in order to pursue more of your current endeavors? Uh. Well, I mean, I actually I did not like working anymore, so that I stopped. <laughs> so it's, it's it's more it's more it's more in that direction. I think it it, it depends on it depends on, on on personal temperament. So I like I like learning new things, uh, but I don't like maintenance and I don't like achieving for the sake of achieving. You know, this whole thing about rising in the ranks or getting awards or something doesn't mean anything to me. Um, so as soon as I run out of new things to explore, the game changes for me. So for me, it's, it's, it's mostly, you know, about avoiding this like quiet desperation of the boring life where you just do the same thing every day. It's just, it's just not for me. I mean, I don't, I don't know how other people do it, but I, I'm guessing it's somewhat internal about internal temperamental or constitutional, um, so for physics, for example, I found that tremendously interesting in the beginning, you know, when I was doing my uh, uh, PhD, it's probably the most interesting research I've ever done. Uh, but but after that, it, it very quickly becomes about, well, you, you did it once, kind of like you run your first marathon. And that's like a great achievement. And then what do you do after that? Well, you can run longer, somehow try to increase the challenge or change the challenge. Uh, or you can run another marathon and another one and another one, right? But repeating yourself over and over again becomes a different challenge. And that, that's the kind of challenge I don't really like. Uh, so, so this idea of like running like a hundred marathons uh, from like a scientific perspective, ending a career where you published 600 pages, uh, papers about roughly the same thing is to me not as exciting as having published the first few papers. So I probably went on for too long in, in physics, and I found that talking about eerie, like my my blog work and the philosophy there was interesting to me because it was new. I was trying to work out all these, you know, solving the how to live better on a finite planet uh, was more interesting than uh, the fifth resonance level on beryllium four or something interacting with a proton that's interesting to maybe five people in the world. And so, uh, and it was the same. It was a little bit the same with the, with the quant work. Uh, this is a little bit more like um, 
you try to think of a new model, you program something in, does it work? If it's not, you do it again, you try a new one, then you find something, maybe it works, then you run that for a while, then it stops working because the trend changed, as we talked about, and then you do it again and again and again. And so that kind of becomes becomes your work. And um, I think, uh, I, I can't pronounce his name, but the the, the guy who's, who's famous for this, the flow, uh, uh, Mihai Chik, uh, me, me, well, ah. What do you mean by flow? Um, it's, it's essentially a. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to resolve. What is he called? Ah, <laughs> let me uh, see if I can look this up real quick. Uh, yeah, Mihai Chiks and Mihali, I think it is. Probably butchered that entirely. But so, like, you had you had the the. The challenge on, on the y-axis and, and, and the skill perceived skill on the x-axis, and so if if something is high challenge and and, and low skill, you you feel anxious, um, and then once your skill level increases and sort of you into an arousal state, well, this is like super exciting, and as your skill increases and the challenge is still high, you get into this flow zone where you forget about the forget about time and you just sort of like in the zone essentially uh, but then you become so good at what you're doing that the challenge level starts declining and then you go from flow to control uh, the control stage um, if, if you google like flow chart uh, anxiety arousal flow control stuff you'll you'll find it um, you get into this control state where you're sort of you're good at your job you're just but it's not really that exciting to you. You you look at it. Oh, it's like three three thirty now. I can go home in an hour, and I'm still doing it. What next problem, please, and so on. And you get and the challenge keeps dropping because you get more experience in your skill, and now you get to this kind of relaxed state. Where you don't really care that much about your work anymore, but you can do it. Uh, this is where people typically ask, say that, well, I can do my job in like two hours, but what do I do the other? Uh, six hours I have to be here. What should I read? How should I improve myself? Um, and as skill keeps improving, then the challenge goes down, right? Uh, and then you start getting bored and you can get so bored that you become apathetic. Like, what am I doing with my life? Why, why am I sitting here writing papers and typing TPS reports? So you take this kind of like on that chart, you take at least if you're sort of a learning personality, uh, you take this kind of rotation where you all, all typically go from some kind of arousal or flow state doing a work and into what eventually ends up as, as boredom or apathy. Uh, I don't know how people avoid doing that, but that is the main reason why I tend to seek out new things uh, sort of every five to ten years. So I, I do think there's some kind of like temperamental thing going on there, a personality thing, sort of like an explorer thing. Yeah, I share that personality with you. Yeah. Uh, I find that for me, about every four or five years, it seems looking back on my life thus far, you're older than I am. But I kind of feel like, all right, done that, mastered it, ready to go on right. to something else. <laughs> like, there's yeah, just... yeah, because it's like life is about mastering things for right. us, right? It's not so much about like demonstrating your mastery for like the next 40 years or something. It, that would be be boring in a sense. I mean from the perspective of sort of the, the working world, that's of course a waste in, in, in the sense that, I mean, you, I often get that, well, you have a 
PhD in physics and society paid for that and so uh, it's not fair that you go off and do early retirement stuff or you go sailing or whatever um and maybe maybe there's a point to that but um so like i forgot where i was going with this <laughs> well um, to me that's actually one of the favorite things so i chose entrepreneurship as my financial freedom pathway i realized if i just start a business that fits me then by having that business I can continue to live the life that I want to live and I don't have to save millions of dollars for financial yeah. independence first. I can I can live along the way and kind of live how I want to live. But my favorite thing about being an entrepreneur is that as an entrepreneur, you can regularly take parts of your life and stop them. So if there's something yeah. in your business that you want to change, you don't have to change everything all at once. You don't have to go from one job to another. You don't have to disrupt everything. Yeah. You can just simply say, here are 20% of my current activities or 20% of my current business that I don't want to do anymore. And you can ax it and you can bring in 20% in something else. It can be multiple yeah. businesses. It can be businesses in different places. It can be related things or completely disrelated things. You just choose with your time. And so if you yeah. do that at 10% every year, every 10 years, you've completely re, 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 uh, imagined your entire life if you do 20 percent per year every five years kind of like a shakes netting its yeah, skin yeah, yeah. you can be a totally different person every five years yeah. and do it in a really sustainable way without any jarring impacts which are oftentimes hard to hard to do you know if you say i'm going to stop doing this thing and go to something totally different that's really hard especially when you're working with your wife your children etc but if you just do 20% per year, you can completely reimagine your life every five years. And, and financial independence gives exactly the same, same freedom. Because typically what locks us in is, is first money. But, but once money problem is, is solved, the, 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 the second thing that tends to be like the limiting factor would be something like access, uh, access to doing interesting stuff. Uh, There's another kind of little, little bit of a problem with the fire movement is that if it's if it if fire is just seen as like earning lots of money, saving them, investing them, getting your four percent, but not nothing else, then you end up with this uh, kind of like market-based retirement, where all you can do is like retirement options offered by the market, which typically means traveling, going out, going to seminars, but you can't you you don't get to do all the exciting stuff that requires some some skill level. Or some access, knowing people, like, you know, sailing, finding a cool job, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think, I think in that, in that regard, with ERE being so skill based, that has helped a lot. That, 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 that has definitely made it so for me that I did not return to my old career after taking like what essentially is an extended sabbatical. I, I, that, that happens often in, in the fire movement. Uh, I think. In terms of like being an entrepreneur, suppose just to look at sort of like it from a meta meta perspective, a meta problem is if what you enjoyed the most about the entrepreneurial phase was starting a new business, then you have like a real problem, right? Because once it's started, you have to essentially somehow leave it and then start another one, right? And then start another one. I think I think that's my problem with being being learning oriented. As in, once I learn something, I can't like learn it again. 
I have to learn something new. Uh, I got a lot of flack for that when I stopped blogging uh, because my reason, my reasoning back then was I had I had this little plugin on, on my blog that said something like if you like this post, you'll probably also like these posts. And after having written about 1,000 posts, often I would write a new thing, and then you know, like three or four identical, almost identical posts would come up, and I was just like, I'm not gonna repeat myself. I hate repeating myself. So this just gotta like end here. Whereas like a lot of, I got a lot of critique, uh, well-intended advice in that. Well, you just gotta figure out how to sell it in a different way. You know, like you wrote this book you know like the general eerie philosophy books and now you're just gonna write eerie for businessmen or eerie for the home stay-at-home parent or eerie for this or eerie for this like no 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 i'm not gonna do that that's just repeating myself like this is just doing maintenance so that that i have not been very happy about i mean it's i think it's a little bit unfortunate that the world is not structured very well for this kind of like multi-learning personality or like the exuberant personality i think it's also called i mean there's like it's kind of like how there are books for, for introverts. There are also books for people who want to do all kinds of different things. <laughs> There's just not much in terms of like career uh, stuff unless you're, gonna, you, you, you're, you're fixing it yourself. You have to create your own game, so to speak. Uh, so it's not, it's not as easy. I'd like to ask you some questions that are really on a personal interest level for me, things I think a lot about. And... This a lot ties into investing and I guess just a thesis in the world. The area that I've struggled the most to teach people about has been about investing because my professional background was very mainstream, you know, I don't know what to say other than just the mainstream market approach, the mm -hmm. efficient market hypothesis, um, you know, all of the modern portfolio theory, et cetera, just very mainstream and I was never allowed as a financial advisor any latitude to explore my own theories or explore my own ideas. So over the last few years, as I've studied a lot investing for learning how to manage my own assets, I've I've realized that I've systematically systematically needed to deconstruct a lot of the things that I learned before because I realized that many of the things that I learned before maybe didn't take into account some of the risks and things that, that I see that I think are true. But I've often right. struggled because a lot of people don't seem to be equipped to talk about them. So I think a mm -hmm. lot, for example, about the United States versus the rest of the world. When I look at the United States, I see very limited, constrained growth potential. I don't see the opportunity for the 20th century to repeat itself in the 21st century. As you said, I think there are some factors that made the 20th century a very productive time to live in, to work in, and to invest in the United States. But I don't see those same factors in the place for the 21st century. I also right. see a lot of systemic risks that I struggle with. How do I articulate this? Not in a, a fear-mongering way, but in a, an accurate way that, that demonstrates that there really are significant challenges and one should consider how to protect themselves, their family, and their assets from those challenges, right. from those systemic risks. So I want to begin with just asking you a little bit about the United States and the thesis of the United States. 
When you think about the economic and investing future of the United States as compared to some other parts of the world, how do you view it from your perspective and background? Well, I mean, let me think. <laughs> so given that everything is globalized, I don't really make that much of a distinction between the US per se and other parts like emerging markets. I don't think one can go hide in an emergent market saying like if the growth in the, in the US is going to stop mostly that, okay, we're just going to go to China instead because that's going to grow. Uh, or because money flows way too easily in that regard. So I am not, I'm not really confident that that's, that's where to look. Uh, I personally prefer the, I mean, as, 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 as you could see by me reducing my, my spending as much as possible, is a much stronger strategy than trying to protect my money in that regard. So I don't, I don't see sort of like I, I, I want to get 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 out of the uh, what what I would call the consumer mentality. So the the, the systemic uh, the systemic risk a systemic risk is essentially something that will destroy the system as you're currently engaged in work. So I mean, if you look at how your current system. If, uh, so the, I'm using like the generic you here. So like for most consumers, it would be the fact that they have a job where they get money and then they have various places where they can spend that money by right, going to the store. And that, that's all very abstract. But um, I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'd say that 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 COVID the COVID lockdowns made that very real for many people. Uh, before that, I, I, I was personally struggling with getting people to consider other, other say, asset classes than investment, uh, because the argument was always, um, why should I, being this fancy engineer or doctor that I am, earning 40 to 60 to $80 an hour, spend my time on doing stuff I can just pay someone else to do for $15 an hour? And with COVID, people suddenly found that they could not solve problems by doing the ritual of running to the store or calling some service representative out to fix their problems for them. So all that stuff was essentially um, cut away. And that destroyed, say, one wing of this sort of like going to work and to, to make money and then going to um, the store to solve problems. So with one leg gone of a of such a structure, you have essentially changed the structure. You have a, you have a structural crisis or a systemic crisis. And so the the widest generate uh, the, the, the the widest possible definition of the systemic crisis is something that destroys or collapses part of the structure that you normally take for granted. And I think this is. This is this is what one needs to be be careful about. It's not a question of having sort of like the um, the, the the wrong investment. The, the problem is in thinking that investment is the, the actual solution. Because when there's when 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 there's a structural change, doing more of what of of, of what you're already doing is not is not going to solve it. Um, so personal structures, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so that there generally like two two ways to protect yourself against structural risk or structural collapse, and the one is to build complexity, and the other one, uh, 
if you fail to build that complexity, the structure will typically collapse into subsystems. I mean, if you look at things systemically, you have subsystems that make up the greater system and so on. And the structure is the thing that connects all these. And so it's, it's kind of hard to hand wave my way through this. Um, build complexity was way number one. And what, what's way number two? Um, if you fail to build complexity, you'll collapse into subsystems. Okay. So, 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 so your 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 world, uh, if 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 you will, is built out of subsystems that make greater systems that in turn make larger systems. And every time you add connections between those two, be, between all these systems, you increase uh, you increase uh, complexity. And a systemic crisis is when some of these connections drop out, they get eliminated. So, like how COVID eliminated our ability to solve any and all problems by running to the store or calling some expert in or how it prevented some of us from like actually going to work. We're told that your job is inessential. You don't need to come back until six months from now. And so um, this was solved in different ways around the world. That's probably a good, a good way good way to explain it. So like in, uh, in the Asian countries, having had experience with SARS, the first variant, uh, about 10 years ago, they could easily increase like cultural complexity by getting everybody to wear a mask. So that was like no problem. And so they kept like infection in, in infection levels low and basically just breezed through it. Uh, so that was solved by increasing uh, yeah, complexity because the cultural capital was there to do it. In, in the Western world, they already knew that people were too individualistic to abide by such an increase in complexity. So instead, I mean, yeah, okay. Um, so instead, it collapsed into the various subsystems. So this was handled differently in Europe and in, in the United States. So in Europe, you already have the welfare state could then go in and increase complexity on the subsystem that essentially takes, takes care of people. Uh, so instead of, as we did in the US, give everybody lots of money and bail out the market, again <laughs> with just you know like blanket checks to everybody you know everybody got like 1400 or 2000 or whatever it was um over there it was it, it went along the existing uh, unemployment system which was much better so all the governments had to do was essentially fund the unemployment system and they, they would figure it out so the initial sort of like return to to growth was much stronger over there whereas here we are sort of like been lagged a bit, but now we have tons of money, so now our growth rates are bigger. But so so you have these three examples where Asia immediate more complexity, uh, Europe and US. You had initial collapse to subsystems, and one being sort of solved a bit by adding complexity, and the other uh, not so much. Um, so that's again extremely generic. Um, so there are like two two aspects I would say to the like. So so in my case, in our case, in this household, we we essentially breezed through. I mean, COVID was an, uh, almost like an, a non-issue, a, a nothing burger to us. Uh, and, and the same thing with the great financial crisis, because we already, in, as opposed to like the uh, consumer sort of like two-winged earn spend earn spend earn spend cycle, we already have. Uh, fairly complex uh, set of skill management and tools and parts and resources that we can draw on 
So if we have sort of one leg shot out, we can easily like turn turn to uh, to another leg. So we are fairly resilient in that in that sense. Um, so want me to keep going on? <laughs> well, do you do you think yeah. that there? So obviously the pandemic kind of up uprooted a lot of things and disrupted the entire world. But mm-hmm. I don't really think the pandemic was a black swan event. It wasn't an unexpected or no, unpredictable no, thing. Like Do you yeah. think that there are things that could genuinely upset the global balance that could genuinely disrupt everything to a very deep level? Yeah. I mean, climate change uh, can and probably will do that. Uh, so, I mean, if, 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 so climate change. I mean, this is this is this is kind of like one of those things where that which 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 are almost a bad idea to talk about because people like to hear the positive side rather than the negative side. You know, like we like we like to. I'll, I'll bring the positivity. It. You can bring the negativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> beat Debbie down. We'll let people judge for themselves uh, who's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I mean. I think I said earlier that that humanity almost always has like three three problems as 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 population as in like how do I how do and, and they all connected right um, so they can they can affect affect each other so you have a system again and that can collapse into those things uh, but anyway so you have you have your population problem as in like how how do we feed everybody like how do we generate enough food for humanity. Then you have the, the the resource problem. Um, how do we keep civilization going? Do we have enough resources to pay in energy and minerals and the structures that keep our civilization as it is currently? And then you have the pollution. And pollution could be very general, but with climate change, it's often thought of as CO2, but it could also be like methane and, and CFCs and all kinds of other things. Um, so anything that like takes out one of these would be considered a, a, a big problem. And the current current big one is, is climate change. Uh, the other one that comes in occasionally, which is closely associated with climate change, is the loss of biodiversity. Uh, essentially ecosystem services, uh, pollination of, of, of plants, uh, water filtration, that kind of thing. Uh, that is not going very well at all. Um, I think it's estimated that something like uh, we get like, in, in terms of free ecoservices, we get about as much from, from nature as we get from our own economy, which means that if we destroy most of nature, we would have to first invent, you know, technologies that somehow, if possible, could take over these services and then divert. That would then be since it's like 80 trillion here and 80 trillion here, divert 50% of our efforts towards getting something that we would otherwise get for free, which would mean cutting standards of living on average in half at the end of the, towards the end of the century. And by cutting standards of living in half, that does, of course, not mean that it's like equally distributed towards everybody. I mean, some people might do well, other people will die. So, I mean, we're, we're definitely headed, headed, headed towards something that's not very nice towards, towards, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> uh, tough stuff. Um, do you, do you think of yourself as, be- I'm trying to assess kind of your personal level of optimism versus pessimism. Do you view 
devastation caused by climate change and loss of biodiversity, do you view this as a certainty? A certainty? Do you view this as a high probability, a possibility? How do you personally rank these things and their likelihood of happening? Well, I mean, I, see, I mean, there's, I think a big part of the problem is that um, we've, we've split ourselves into, uh, we've, we've divided ourselves into narrow experts on, on, on various fields. You know, you have scientists who, who think about these things, uh, and then you have engineers who come up with solutions. You have the economists who, who try to figure out how to pay for them. And then you have to, politicians who have to manage all these interests. And there are all these kind of competing interests. I mean, the problem today in the world is not that we lack information about all these problems. And it's not that we don't know what's coming. It's kind of like with the pandemic. You, hear, you always hear people say, nobody could have foreseen this. But yes, people have foreseen this for decades, right? Uh, there's, there's a book by Michael Osterholm from SITRAP who, from, I think, 2017 or something, who uh, he, he had a flu, but he got the Wuhan uh, location correct and where it might originate. So we know we know this stuff is coming. The problem is in uh, being able to agree on it, you know, agreeing on what the solution should be. And just from like a simple perspective, priority, right? What is what is important here? I mean, in some parts of the world, people are already dying from poverty. So should they not be allowed to increase their standard of living so they don't do that so that other people might not die of climate change? Uh, present versus future, etc. So the one of the major problem and why I think these issues are what I would consider a is that this lack of agreement and the systems we have to to resolve these agreements, like democracy or like the market, are all very very short term in uh, in, in by construction almost. Right. I mean, if you go to market solutions, right, you, you, you typically operate with like a discount rate of about 10 percent. Right. Which 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 means that um, something seven years from now, a solution, if we build a solution today that will not be useful. Seven years from now, it's only going to be worth half as much. We're only going to deem it worth half as much as 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 as, as we're paying for it now. Right. And you can you can kind of imagine how that. Uh, it's very hard, it's hard, hard to say it uh, in, in this way, but how it makes us think about the next generations when we apply a 10% discount rate to them, right? It means that if, if, if someone gets born today, then 30 years from now, they're only like worth 5% of what we consider our present worth, right? So when we make decisions, are we going to like build something that someone can enjoy 30 years from now? Only if it's actually 20% better than what we can get today. And so it means that there's like a lot of like wasted potential here still. Um, and you have the same thing with the, with like the uh, democratic process, right? Where you can very quickly lose votes if you adopt a, a, a long-term horizon in your planning. I mean, nobody's going to get elected from but by saying something, we, we, we're going to have to do this, but we're not going to see the benefits until like 120 years from now. But we have to do it so that future generations may live. I mean, that's very hard to do, even for something that gets benefits, you know, like 20 years from now, like building a bridge or something or like yeah. fixing infrastructure. I mean, it's always infrastructure week, right? 
and and that's that's almost a standing joke because infrastructure never gets solved. Uh, uh, Actually, I would not say never. I mean, you, you can see what happened in, uh, in the difference between uh, the response to the first uh, energy crisis in, in 73 and 79 uh, uh, in, in, in Europe versus the U.S., right? Uh, where, where U.S. went towards new discovery, uh, Alaska and uh, adventures in the Middle East. And, and Europe went for energy efficiency and completely upgraded their grid and their transportation taxing heavily. So different different regions of the world will have different responses. But, I think uh, I think the responses are possible. Like I, I mean, we're all guessing, right? I, I could yeah, totally yeah, yeah. Like, they're possible, but not plausible. Is what I'm getting. Well, I, I would. I don't. They may not be plausible in the United States. That's kind of how I think about it. Like you, th- you look at. You look at what a small, more homogenous society can do, right? I think about a place like Dubai, right, or, or other Emirates, and you think about what they can do when they have no democracy. You have the ability to basically say, this is what we're going to do, and you yeah. really don't have a say in it. We're going to do this. We're going to build this. We're going to create this. You know, a couple of years ago, what, Dubai just put a canal through the whole city. There were all kinds of buildings that didn't exist and then they put a canal yeah. in. And with the ability to have a large, well, a government that's not bankrupt and control and a homogenous population that's willing to buy in, I feel like change can happen quickly. What I don't yeah, 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 yeah. really see a solution for is a place like the United States where you have this very diverse population. You don't have any... Well, right now, the cultural threads that once united the United States, as I see them, they're quite frayed, if not totally broken. And you have 330 million people, and you have a democratic republic. So now you have the, the difficulties yeah. of voting, and that seems really hard. It's, 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 it's tricky. I mean, this is also maybe why the sort of the, the, um, the, the, the U.S. as it is was very good at uh, solving 20th century problems, but might not be very good at solving 21st century problems. I mean, I, I see uh, see a lot of sort of like point, people pointing to to China as a, like a technocratic, you know, the party can maybe like exactly make a decision and then make everybody follow it. And maybe that's that's I don't know. I mean, they did and. The, the, the problem with having sort of an authoritarian direction is that it better be the correct one, right? So, so if you pull strongly in the wrong direction, then you can gre- generate real problems, right? If you, if, you, if, if you like elect an authoritarian person to lead the country, right? If that, if that makes sense. And they're not competent at what they're doing, right? You can also cause a lot of damage. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the other solution within the democratic system within a democratic system or within a market system is that uh, the sort of like the personal damage becomes large enough that as I mean, once climate change is directly outside, you know, your window and people start noticing it, it's very likely that they actually will start pulling in the same direction instead of squabbling over irrelevant things to that problem. But the, the, the problem with that is that at that point it might be too late so, like for example, when when scientists talk about dangerous climate change, they they mean danger in two senses of the word. So, the the, the first one is is uh, 
is uh, concrete danger, as in like you get like uh, pummeled by a hurricane or you die of a heat stroke because of a heat wave. But the the, the bigger danger is uh, humanity losing control of the feedback cycles in the climate system. So right now we are by far the greatest emitter of greenhouse gases. So we control the we control the switch, so to speak. But there are positive feedbacks. Uh, they call tipping points in the climate system. And if one of those are, are triggered, for example, methane release or the Amazonian rainforest getting setting itself on permafire until it burns out, then no matter what we do to uh, to try to regulate our emission or even trying to uh, do um, carbon capture and storage, the, the climate system will be on its own, and once it t- once it runs away, it'll it'll, it'll keep running. Uh, so 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 that, that 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 would be the danger thing, and and we don't know whether these tipping points. I mean, I did astrophysics, so that that's a similar complex system with with feedbacks that go in many directions, where you have some semi-stable system. In my case, it was stuff that would eventually explode, and it's very hard to predict when it's actually going to happen. But at some point, it's just the runaway is just going to be exponential. Um, and usually that that sort of tipping point limit is uh, they, they, it's usually said that the dangerous climate change would happen at like two degrees. It's obviously not two is just a number, but it could be like 1.9, 1.8 or whatever. The problem is the way it's currently rising, we will hit two degrees in about 15 years. Like maybe it's not 50, maybe it's like 25 or something, but somewhere between like 2035 and 2045. And maybe nothing will happen. Maybe we'll just get like more heat waves. I mean, we'll for sure get more heat waves and and, 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 and uh, bread basket failures and that kind of stuff, or ocean rise. Uh, but the likelihood of hitting a tipping point just gets increases and increases and increases, right? And so at that, at that point, I, I am not quite sure what uh, what we're gonna do. I mean, I'm, I mean, the, the, the further out you get on this sort of like slope, the further the further you get towards the cliff, cliff the, the 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 bigger the interventions you also have to try. I mean, you can imagine something like geoengineering, right? Like putting sulfites into in, into the atmosphere, but if the problem is is worse, right? I mean, it's it's a little bit like trying to deal with the uh, with uncontrolled diabetes, right? Like the the further the disease progresses, the less you can do to intervene. You can essentially just do palliative care at that point. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm still trying to work on how to present this in a in a positive way. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. So, what? Let's talk about protection then and solutions, because I like yeah. to be solution oriented. Yeah. Let's deal with climate change. Let's say you're trying to teach someone how to build a resilient lifestyle, how to protect themselves and their families. You don't have to change the country. You don't have to change the world. Don't have to change the state. Don't have to change the city. You just want to change your household and protect your household. What solutions do you point to as being things that someone can do that would improve their standing in a catastrophic scenario like a, a worst case climate change scenario? Yeah. So yeah, if, if if for the worst case, you probably can't do much, but you can you can you can definitely do quite well for the next few decades, I think. So I mean the the the, the two aspects I would say to the to the, like the ERE, and I don't mean early retirement here. I really mean sort of like the emergent Local renaissance ecology kind of like my philosophy right. per, per se, like the systems thinking. 
is that it has two components that that would help a lot in in, the, in these regards. And I mean, for the past five years, I, we've been trying to work on a book on 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 these issues, but it all, almost always comes back to the ERE book that you can just follow these principles and pay pay attention. You know, reading some textbooks about like yeah, read a textbook about climate change or about uh, about infectious diseases, and then the year ebook to put it all together. So it kind of comes to back to back to that. But so like the, the the two aspects I recommend for personal, individual, actionable adaption to these problems is the, what I call the Renaissance man, which is being widely skilled. Uh, so you can like coordinate and create very many different solutions, uh, like uh, like the microphone holder I built here instead of buying one. Uh, Show so, it to us. Um, Show yeah, us the okay. microphone holder. Here's my microphone holder. So it's built out of plywood. I don't know what these cost in the economy, but uh, so. So you took the plywood. <laughs> it, it looks like you you cut it. Put it go go back on it. Bring bring it back uh, into the camera. So it looks like you took the plywood. You used rubber bands as a shock mount. Yeah, it's done by rubber bands. And then there's a there's a windows window screen, a piece of window screen as a pop filter, mm-hmm. and, and a cross stitch frame that holds it, like we had to prevent right. my plosives. <laughs> <laughs> and this was all built with stuff stuff that was in in the house. We have not gone wood shopping wood shopping for almost a year now. So actually during COVID, we have been very in the, we have been a very independent household. We we go shopping about every five weeks. Um, so, but but going back to the adaption part, so like there's, there's this Renaissance man thing where instead of being an, an uber specialist in your profession, so you can earn lots of money, the the idea is to be wildly skilled, not not sort of in a in a compartmentalized box thing, but so you can connect things like you know woodwork, you know metalwork, you can put these two together with electronics, say, and the more different things you know the more sort of solutions appear to you and not not only does that make you flexible you can always go around looking for things so oh, i can put this together with that and solve that problem uh it also renders make, make makes it uh possible to create solutions that you cannot buy and it's interesting right um so 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 that refers back to the part that has to do about strengthening your subsystems uh, in terms of the collapse, the two collapse outcomes. The other one is what I call the web of goals. And goal is, um, is, is, is not the greatest term. It's more like a web of consequences, a web of connections. And here you take all the sub- subsystems you've developed and, and, and instead of just sort of like tracking, I earn money there and I spend money here, you track, well, I have wood resources here and I can put it together and for, for this kind of uh, problem and for this kind of problem. And I have food here that can go to like neighbors or it can go in, it can be canned. And I have these professional, I can program, I can both program my thermostat with some kind of Arduino or whatever, but I could also earn money on that. I can tutor this, I can do that. So you build this kind of complex web of all your skills that all fit together so that if one of your skills gets get taken out, let's let's say you can't, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, some, 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 some structure like gets kicked out of yours. And it's like a little bit like a spider web. Like if you just snap out one strand, the spider web still works. Whereas if you snap out someone's job or their credit card or whatever, then much of their world collapses. 
Right. So in that in that sense, the ERE concept is 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 quite resilient. I mean, you can kick it in any different direction; it'll still do quite well. What about if I expand the question in terms of protecting? So, I think there are generally some consistent solutions for almost every catastrophe, whether that catastrophe be personal and localized, such as or tornado taking out my house or the loss of a job. Or if that catastrophe be national or global in scale, uh, a worldwide pandemic, a international climate change, the solutions to protect my life and lifestyle are fairly common. They resolve around, or they revolve around having the personal resources: water, food, uh, shelter, uh, having co- sense of community. And the other things and the skills that you're talking about, skills of making things, skills of growing things, et cetera. So there are some common solutions that fit there. What if we go now to the financial world, though, and talk about it with regard to investing? Do you have some suggestions as to how to create a more resilient investment portfolio that's still in the monetary economy? Well, I mean, I think the monetary economy will will persist. It's it's very hard to imagine a world, even if it gets really bad, without a functional market system. Uh, okay, now let me rephrase that. It's very hard to imagine one without a market system. It might not be functional. Um, so in that sense, I think there will still be things like stocks and bonds going forward for a long time. Okay, well, okay. Um, which kind of brings me back to like what is what is the other goal? I mean, in terms of like with the with the four percent rule and, and the index fund investing, the goal would be to withdraw four percent per year for thirty years. But you could also have goals. And my goal would be like to preserve purchasing power, or my goal would be to preserve wealth in most financial outcomes. So you have, I mean, things like the permanent portfolio, right, was a classic which was developed during the 70s to pre- pretend, protect essentially against this different market uh, market conditions, conditions. I would say, like market mar- mar- chain, yeah. Um, but that was, that was specifically uh, meant to preserve wealth, not give you an income. So, and, and the point was that you develop the wealth by working a job. So in that sense, the permanent portfolio comes with some kind of income until you have enough that you don't need it to grow anymore. It's just meant, meant to preserve wealth, right? Um, another even more hardcore strategy for that was the alpha strategy, which is probably the coolest strategy ever. Uh, so so that, was, that also came out of the end of the 70s, beginning of, of the 80s, when inflation was like skyrocketing. And that essentially involved uh, stocking up on, on on stuff for like a lifetime supply. And you can just imagine the kind of like uh, personal infrastructure you would need to preserve 20 years worth of toilet paper, say, or, you know, shoes for the rest of your life. And you're eventually going to run out of, 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 of things like that. But I mean, if you integrate some some of these ideas into your own life, I mean, for me, I store wood, so I always have to, something to build build on but on the other hand you know i can't pay my real estate taxes with the uh, with my uh, stash of plywood um another interesting strategy is uh the c i probably butcher the name again here bodhi 
he wrote a book called Risk Less and Prosper. And I think he got kind of burned in, in, in the, in the dot com bubble. And so his, uh, his recommendation was just to get like, um, inflation pro protected treasuries. And the goal was simply to preserve buying power, nothing else. But that means like for an early retirement guy, right? If you're going to be retired for the next 60 years or something, then you, instead of have going by a, by a 4% rule where you need 25 times your earnings, you're going by essentially like a 60 year rule where you really need to save up 60 years of, of, of spending, um, depending on how long, how long you're, you're, you're going to live. Um, I think in, 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 in practice, I think the most, most practical recommendation there is to pay attention because even ordinarily investment strategies or the dominant ones tend to change every 10 years or so, right? I mean, you have uh, index funds are like super popular now, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, in the 2000s, it was real estate, right? Uh, in the 90s, it was, it was uh, tech stocks. In the 80s, it was like money market accounts and, and, and so on. And the biggest biggest problems I see in, in these kind of long-term plannings is uh, is when uh, people do adopt some kind of dogmatic set and forget uh, investment strategy, where it's just like experts have proven that this is the best strategy ever. So I'm gonna like uh, retract into my echo chamber and reinforce my idea that I don't need to think about this ever again, right? So maybe you invest in, in treasurer bonds, uh, in, in the seventies, but then, then, but it would be a mistake to still insist that long-term treasuries are the best way to go going forward. Right. Yeah. I think when I look at it, I would add to what you've said to just simply maintain an income. Uh, obviously it's nice to be financially independent. And I think the people who are financially independent, they have a portfolio they can live on are in a much better position than the vast majority of people who are working for income. Of course, they have money yeah. and they can always go and get another job. And during your time of, of, I mean, it's not like you're sitting around watching TV all day, right? You're building skills and these skills can be developed. But I think one of the best solutions is simply don't stop generating an income. And I, I know this may not fit for you, but for me personally, that's the, that's, my most resilient answer. Because if I always yeah. have an income, if I always have a business, if I always have a job, and I personally take a lot of joy from some of the work that I do, we'll see if I take as much joy when I am actually financially independent. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But if you have those okay. skills, you can just create a, a business that, that will solve the need, solve the problem at the time. And that's, I think, I where I'm personally that. more, probably more optimistic than you are. I feel like while humans might be the cause of many of their own problems, humans are always the solution. And that as creatures, we will solve every problem, sometimes early, sometimes late, but the solutions can be implemented. You know, if you think about something like climate change, just imagine if you brought in I don't know, Jeff Lawton or Joel Salatin, and you said, look, the world is facing a crisis. We have the United States of America. We have, I don't know how many acres of farmland available, and we need to drastically transform significant percentages of this farmland into a way that, into systems 
biological systems that are going to trap carbon, that are going to produce food, and that are going to generate rainfall across the United States. And we're going to put the full power and force of the federal government behind you. <laughs> I'm quite confident that the, the carbon scale would change within a few years. Now, maybe I'm naive. Yeah. I don't think I am, but uh, the problem it's is just a matter of the motivation. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the problem is the agreement part. I mean, that's, I mean, the technology, technological uh, solutions, maybe even at scale still exist. That's getting people to agree to actually implement and pay for them. Yeah, uh, but that, I, that's, that's kind of like, how, what do you think about humanity when it comes to, to that? Will, will people, will people act? Will people come together and act with foresight to solve problems that will not affect them personally, but will, make life better for people like 50 or 100 years down the road or will they not so that's 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 sort of like where you set your level of, of cynicism yeah. i think i think the best uh, and i'm i'm probably quite cynical in that <laughs> in that regard um i think i think the best so i mean keeping some kind of income is 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 is, is a great solution and and having money having money saved helps a lot and I, but i would i would like to expand that and say i mean as long as you keep generating value and, uh, right. and generate that Absolutely. in multiple it's probably just a different way of saying it generating different kinds of value it's like one but one kind of value you can you can generate is just to like like starting a garden and sharing your your vegetables with with your neighbors that generates some form of community and it generates a little bit i mean depending on how productive you are it also generates an additional way of, of feeding yourself for a while Absolutely. So, so go, go, going, going multidimensional, essentially getting out of this, the, the specialization of tracking more variable than, than, than just, just money. I would say the, 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 the more, the more, the more variables you track and the more variables you can control and tweak and so on, the less relevant money becomes. I think is my point. I don't disagree. And I think that's a good, uh, how do you say it in English? Precision, a, a good uh, <laughs> clarification. Um, yeah. Because certainly there are many people who don't generate income, don't, don't need to generate income, but still generate significant amounts of value. Right. I always just think of my wife. My wife doesn't generate any income, yeah. but she has enough cultural capital that exactly. no matter what, I'll take care of her for the rest of her life. And I'll make sure that even if I die early, she's still taken care of. My parents, my siblings, our, our local community, um, people who are in my church, you know, these are people who have generated cultural capital. And as long as they've done things in an appropriate way where they've contributed, they've provided value, they're yeah. going to be seen to. And that's where societies have always organized themselves around people meeting one another's needs. I guess I would share two yeah. lessons that I have learned from the pandemic. Lesson number one is that I have more faith in markets than I ever had before. I just observe that people solve problems. And when they see something that's needed, they come together. And I think markets will react and adapt. I don't know what that means to the stock market. But in terms of the market of the buying and selling interchange of value from one person to another, those things will continue no matter the crisis. The second thing is... I have full confidence that when a government leader believes that a situation is dire enough, they will impose whatever draconian 
restriction of freedoms they deem necessary. And there's a good chance that the majority or the vast majority of the population will go along with it. To me, I thought I have been fascinated by watching the scenario through the pandemic in places like New Zealand and Australia. I mean, Australia was so striking. Of course, and of course, you know, you have two isolated islands who are fighting the pandemic and they have opportunities that countries that are well, much more connected don't have to keep the border out. But Australia literally came to the point where their lockdowns were so severe that they made it illegal to go outside your house and walk the dog. I screenshotted, I still have it in my files, I screenshotted, I think it was the Brisbane police, saying to a, some woman who was saying, my husband thinks he can still go out and walk the dog, simply saying, no, you're not allowed to do it. And I watched video after video after video of police officers arresting people for going out on the street, for going to the playground, etc. And I always thought that Australia was more of a kind of a freedom individualist, freedom-oriented individualistic culture, kind of like the United States is. I could not believe that the Australians took it. And then I look at the United States, and you have, of course, a very diverse system. You have, I think, much more control of the states. But still, the level of the lockdowns that people have been willing to submit to in the United States of America, you know, the home of the free and the land of the brave, people allow their businesses to be closed. They allow everything to be taken away because the government said you're non-essential. I, I'm sympathetic to the need to isolate, to the need to those things. But I never expected the level of compliance that I saw. And to me, going forward, my operating position is that maybe there is a yearning for freedom in the, the heart of the human breast as conservative political pundits um, you know, are, are want to say that people just want freedom. I don't see enough evidence at this point to be convinced of it. So if if what's needed is an authoritarian techno, technocratic solution to some of these problems, right, a Chinese-level lockdown, uh, a complete Green New Deal, I'm unconvinced that there's a society, even a democratic republic like the United States, that will stand against it at this point. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, but, but I mean, that I think is the... Uh kind of comes back to the damage needs to be high enough before those actions are taken. Right. Like uh, bodies in the street kind of thing. So if there's right. a lag time between the solution and when it should have been implemented. Right. right. I mean, right now we're getting the climate change that we essentially emitted for 20 years ago. Right. Well, I think you could yeah. see that. I think the pandemic is a good lesson. If you look at the United States, where you had the lowest level of compliance, probably of most countries around the world, where you had probably some of the slowest kind of draconian posi- impo- you know, imposed lockdowns, isolating, closing of the borders, etc. I think you could see that certainly with regard to the death toll, at least the the, the nominal death toll, that it, it's far higher than, than some other places. I mean, the Australians, most of the Australians in the office, in the audience are saying, well, look at our death toll compared to the death toll of the United States. The restrictions did their job. And that's a fair, a fair argument, a fair point. But I think eventually the society, I think humans are smart and they eventually realize what they're facing and they eventually do the things that are going to solve the, prob- the problems. I have faith in individual humans well, <laughs> working I mean, with their uh, neighbors. Uh, there will definitely be some solution. <laughs> right, right. We'll see. Um, Jacob, whether we're going to like it. Uh. <laughs> right. Is there anything 
uh, as we start to wrap up this interview, is there anything else that has been sparked for you? Anything I haven't covered that you'd like to share with my audience of some of the lessons that, that you've learned and the thoughts you've had in some of these areas? In 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 the crisis kind of thing, <laughs> just on anything that we've it, talked today, I got it explained very well. But I mean, I think I think uh, I've I've been quite quite happy with the way sort of like the the ERE philosophy has comp, uh, uh, dealt with these situations, and then the way I, I heard, I think it was some FEMA director who said something like, "If you're prepared for an earthquake, you're prepared you're prepared for a lot of things," and I think. Living a way that's already resilient means that you do not have to worry nearly as much about like individual like trouble spots. Like, I mean, there was, there was a TV show called something like Doomsday Preppers at, at one point. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I kind of gave, I kind of gave up. Uh, but, but, but the idea there was that here we have a family and they're specifically prepping for some very specific thing like an EMP pulse and their whole life is revolving around being prepared for that one thing that has like a half percent chance in a century of occurring. Um, and you see the same thing in like, um, like the after climate change kind of had a, like a, um, a rebirth in, in after the heat waves and the wildfires in 2018. There's a lot of people like freaking out. What, what do I do? And do I need to live my life completely on the sentiment of this one problem? They kind of get into this kind of silo where they were overreactions are prone. They're prone to overreact and do crazy things because this is like 100% of their focus. In, in, in that regard, I think it's, sort of wiser in the long run, kind of like what I learned with peak oil, right? It essentially has not happened yet. And if I had spent sort of, I know, I know back then, 20 years ago, people were like moving into like, uh, what are they called? Uh, Sustainable Earth communities? Earth, Earth, Earth ships. Earth ships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, and then starting gardens, quitting their jobs, selling everything, putting everything in gold because they thought that the world was going to end next year. It's a lot better to live in a way that's always sort of like generally prepared to deal with everything than it is to be completely focused and trying to be robust towards a specific siloed reaction point. Uh, right. And then, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Jacob, I want to say thank you for coming back onto Radical Personal Finance. I do want to encourage any listener who hasn't read your book to go and get a copy of Early Retirement Extreme. Uh, It's Early Retirement Extreme, a philosophical and practical guide to financial independence. It, in the grand scheme of all of the financial books, it's for me one of the most impactful financial books that I've that I ever read. If you were to go back all the way to episode three of Radical Personal Finance, uh, published on July 18, 2013, uh, there's a, I think about a two hour review of your book. And to this day, I still think that your book is one of the more powerful books because what you did better than almost anyone is attack the problem of financial independence from a systems perspective. And I think that's often what's sorely lacking in many areas of human thought, but including in financial planning. And 
I don't live the lifestyle that you live. I don't live uh, a low consumption lifestyle, at least you know, on the Paul Wheaton eco scale, I'm several rungs above you um, in terms of my, my personal consumption. But what I always think of is, number one, the empowerment from knowing how to do it, knowing that you can live well without suffering. To me, I find that incredibly powerful. And then thinking about the framework and saying, where can I apply these things to my own life and within my own constraints? And then the the last thing I'd like to do is just simply honor you for your intelligent approach to spreading the ideas that you have wanted to spread. With regard to environmental sustainability, I have for years wondered, why do environmental advocates choose bad marketing for their ideas? Why do you come at things from the perspective of deprivation and telling people you're going to die if you don't do these certain things? Why not talk to people about how you're going to get rich if you do these certain things and tap into that sense of human greed that humans have and kind of sneak the environmental stuff in the back door? And so I think that that philosophy that you've engaged in is really brilliant, and I honor you for that. Um, Are you currently writing or publishing anything in a public space where people can follow you, or is there any materials that you'd like to promote other than, of course, the fact that the Early Retirement Extreme blog still exists, the book exists? Are you publishing anything publicly at this point? Um, No, not other than being on this kind of podcast circuit currently. So I decided that I want to try to see if that's that's going to become a thing or something. But uh, no, I'm not currently currently writing. Uh, Yeah, I've kind of found that it's best to do the groundwork before you start doing doing book length stuff rather than starting. Let's write the book first and then like write the blog articles and the podcast later. It's it's a lot easier going the other way around. I had to. Had to learn or relearn that the the hard way, right? Uh, right. So, but uh, for for a bunch of other recent uh, podcasts I've been in, uh, definitely if um, you want like an overview of the eerie principles and philosophy, go to the one on the store. It's on the there's a link in my left sidebar on the blog. Okay. So go check out the Early Retirement Extreme blog and find it uh, there. And go and check out YouTube. Jacob's been doing a number of interviews recently, and other interviewers will do a good job of engaging him on different subjects. As I close Radical Personal Finance, I want to simply remind you that whenever you hear from what someone else is doing and something that they're succeeding at, one of the best things that you can do is simply position yourself not to focus on what you disagree with, but to learn from what they do and why. And when you find a systems thinker like Jacob, try to think about how they view the system and then think about how you can apply that systems thinking in your own life. I really think that is uh, one of the best things to do. In closing, I would remind you that through the end of March, I am uh, offering a 25% off sale on the courses that I sell at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash store. Those courses will go off the market, not because uh, they're not good, but because I'm redoing them at the end of March. But one of those courses, I think that if you're interested in some of these topics of human resilience, uh, one of those courses is the one I'd like to profile today. Specifically, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash store and sign up for the the Radical Personal Finance Guide on How to Survive and Thrive During the Coming Economic Crisis. 
I have took some of these concepts that I've talked about with Jacob today, and I broke them down into a systems perspective. And I laid out two specific ideas and a lot of practical application of those ideas. Idea set number one was how do you build a resilient household, a resilient lifestyle? So if you're going to be at your home in Chicago or in Miami or in London, how do you position your household to survive without money? And you can do that. You can do that so that if you lose your job or you get sick or hurt and can't work, then you can survive without money. And the things that you do protect you in the context of a pandemic. Um, you stockpile the necessary things. You build independence from the systems that exist. But the second thing that you can always do when you're facing a crisis is you can always leave the crisis. And as I studied financial crises over the years, I became persuaded that one of the best ways to survive and thrive during a complete and total financial crisis was by not being where the crisis is. I focused and I realized, listen, if somebody was not in Venezuela, they didn't go through the Venezuela financial crisis. If somebody was not in a town that was dying due to pollution, they survived well. And so even in something like climate change, I think that the principle still applies. You might choose to go to an area, um, you might choose to go to Canada where there's abundant fresh water, where there is currently a cold climate that might warm and moderate if there were climate change. You might go to Brazil or the Southern Hemisphere where there's abundant wild natural resources, and you might plant a flag in those places, establish a citizenship there, establish a house there so you would have a place to go. And even through this pandemic, one of these truly global scales, you can see how your quality of life was dramatically different in different parts of the world. Your quality of life was dramatically different in terms of the lockdowns, the draconian shuttering of businesses, depending on where you were. Many people would say your, your the risks of the pandemic were much, much better. A place like New Zealand, where they've had very low coronavirus infections and very low death count, People have for years said, well, New Zealand is the place to go in a crisis because you're on an island in the middle of nowhere. I think you've seen that borne out in the current crisis. And so we talk about that and I give you some practical instructions on how to do that. So if you'd like to save 25% off um, on that particular course or any of my other courses through March 31, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com store. Use the coupon code ChangingPlatforms to save 20, uh, save, to me, 50%. Uh, I gave you the wrong uh, number. Save 50% off on my courses using the coupon code changing platforms through March 31. Thank you for listening to Radical Personal Finance. I will be back with you soon.